0: If you were counting on me to talk about baseball, let me just get that out of the way. That is not going to happen. That would take like two and a half seconds. Um, I do want to thank Roland and Cherry. I don't know if they're here, but they were here all day yesterday and some this morning putting these beautiful birds. And they probably had no idea we were going to sing Free as a Bird. So just thank you for the beautiful decorations. I spent that first summer as a middle school principal, hand scheduling 600 plus kids. Schedules designed around the then new middle school concept had peculiarities of their own and computers in the 80s had not caught up. It was like solving a giant jigsaw puzzle. Leftover pieces of this puzzle though would be like stray kids in the hall. Since I was the new kid on the block in the previous year at this school, Randman Middle School in Randman had had some problems. The superintendent chose our site to visit on the first day of school. We were standing out in the empty hall. He and I during the first period, and he said, "Where are all the kids?" And I went in my mind, I was like, "Is that a trick question?" I said, "I hope they're in all those little boxes I filled in all summer. You know The point is not to have them in the hall <laughs> during the first period." So the first few days had some victories like that. But then we turned a scary corner. We had a handful of 16 year olds, standard issue eighth graders, leave eighth grade either having turned 14 or going to turn 14 before the ninth grade. You're really not supposed to be finding parking spaces for middle schoolers. On top of that, one of the more more notorious of these 16 year olds was Jerry. And we had just found out that he actually lived out of district. And the solution, as crazy as it sounds, was to suspend him for 10 days while we found a way to get him back into our district. So imagine that day one into his suspension, I look out on the front lawn at the kids gathered in their friend groups. They were waiting on the first bell. There's Jerry smoking. Pretty much another thing that's not supposed to happen on a middle school campus. So I walked outside, as I had to do, and as I approached his group, I could feel all the other eyes waiting on me to see what I would do. Remember, these kids hadn't figured me out yet. As respectfully as I could, I said to Jerry, I'm sorry you can't be at school today. We haven't worked out a way for you to be in our district. He took a long drag of his cigarette and blew it in my face. Without a change of posture or expression... I walked back into the building because I would learned long ago that if you don't know what to do, you buy time and create mystery. Then I called the sheriff's department, asked for a deputy, a deputy, because believe me, this is a tough middle school. And in the summer, I'd said, if I call you, I need a person with a uniform and a gun that's showing. So the deputy got there just as the kids were filing into class. We calmly followed Jerry and very respectfully I told him this officer would take him home and that I hoped to see him back at our school soon. I never, ever addressed the smoking or his effort to discredit me in front of his friends. Now hold that thought. Today we're looking at some of Jesus' most powerful words in Matthew 5, known as the Sermon on the Mount. And I hope you'll stop now and get one of the papers on your table. There's big print and little print, whatever you like. The verses aren't going to be on the screen because I really want them close to you. And so if you need a paper and you don't have one, just feel free to get up and find an extra somewhere and let us know if you want one and don't have one. We're going to do the hard work of wrestling to make these words our own. This is really a pivotal message, and to embrace it may change our entire approach to following Jesus. I'm going to read these words, and I hope you'll mark what speaks most to you. Then take it with you, put it on your nightstand or your mirror, and I hope you'll read it often. So here we go, and this is in the message translation. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. And this is what he said. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one who who is most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you'll find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens, give a cheer even, for though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. Know that you're in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into that kind of trouble. <laughs> so, good news that does not, on the face of it, look like good news to me. Jesus initiates the Sermon on the Mount it, it seems by first thinking of his ministry, what is going to be required of him and he takes the course of action we should all take. He goes contemplative. By that I means he, by that I mean he withdraws from the action of his ministry and resets his core. For us, before the action of our work, our ministry, our relationships, we too need to go contemplative. Resetting our core values through time spent with God. When the world throws its bucket of ice water on you nearly daily, you're going to need a core set of values with which to respond. He climbs a hillside, and this is important. This is, this is the important thing. He climbs a hillside and only takes those apprenticed to him, the committed. And what did they have to do? Even to go with him, they had to climb. Make the effort of climbing to hear good news that on the face of it is what? Not good news. There's nothing namby-pamby about following Jesus. The decision to be made here is if you want to be known as one of the committed. Because we want to keep looking at what that apparently entails. We're going to hit a couple of hot spots on your 12 verses and then we'll settle in on a couple of the harder concepts. So let's look for high spots. End of our rope? No, (laughs) not a high spot. Lost what is most dear? No, (laughs) not going to go there either. Let's try verse five. We're blessed when we're content with just who we are, no more, no less. When we step into our skin and our personality and celebrate the whole package as something God made, regardless of how baffled we are at how he made us, then we're complimenting God. To complain about how we're made is to actually complain against God, and that is not something to be taken lightly. Our complaints reflect that our measuring stick is the world and other people, none of whom our image is made to reflect. I sort of suspect that someday we're going to understand that my little piece of the image of God, like my complete self, joined with your little piece, your complete self, and repeated billions of times, makes up the whole image of God. That's who we will see in eternity. We may very well be a great human jigsaw puzzle that fits together to reflect the image of God. So let's look at verse 6. We're blessed when we've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You may need to ask yourself, are you going hungry? Why would you neglect this banquet? A relationship with God is there for the taking, and yet it's so easy to stay busy with everything but God. Going contemplative, as we saw Jesus doing by climbing the hillside, is seeking out God, scheduling time with him, being secluded with him, And listen to this, giving him a chance to increase your appetite for him. You don't have to do all the work. He is pursuing you. I once told my small group here that their homework was to date God. (laughs) Those are the words I use. Date God four times before we met again. Because a date means that you set aside time and attention for another person. So date God. If it takes that mentality to get you to sit down with him, date God. He certainly wants to date you. I don't really have a good analogy. That works for me because I'm going to date God. But I've always wondered what that meant for the guys. But standing before him someday will only make us wonder how in the world we gave all our time to the world. And not to contemplating how much we're loved. Each of us is his very beloved. And we sometimes run from that truth more then we embrace it. Okay, so let's look at 7, 8, and 9 together. We're called to be full of care for others, with our mind and heart put right, showing people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. We can't do this if we're per- pursuing ourselves full time. The world teaches us to make it about us, fight for what is ours, step on whomever may be in the way. And arrive at some perceived destination when everything will finally be what we deserve. Then enters Jesus, whom I often call pesky Jesus. He says the polar opposite. Make it about others. Fight for those who are weaker by serving them. Letting others step on you if need be and arriving at the destination of what? Having given your whole self away. There's no way to even glimpse such an absurd notion unless you climb that hillside and become the committed. Your inside world in verse 8, your mind and heart, is your view of God at work in the outside world. And now he wants us to enter into that work going on right now all around us by giving ourselves away, being full of care for others, inspiring Cooperation instead of competition or fighting. Overcoming our tendency to grade and compete with others. Rather than find the lane that God has for, for each of us. Okay, seven, eight, and nine were the easy ones. Now comes for now comes what for me is perhaps the greatest mystery of all. Why are we called to suffer? I don't know any other way to read verses three. 4, 10, 11, and 12, except that they are about suffering. God knew the way of the world would be suffering. Suffering occurs, as we know, when pain is transmitted to us by our own decisions, our circumstances, and or the actions of others. Pain can be handed down even across generations. The why of suffering is that it will always occur when free will goes awry. It loses its moral compass of love that God is always waiting to share. The absence of suffering in this life would mean the absence of free will. When we ask why God would allow suffering, I think we're succumbing to a temptation to actually take our eyes off of God Because he has this whole storehouse of solution for suffering. And it's embedded in these harder verses. So to ask for the suffering to go away is not the right question. The question is, what do I need to face the suffering? And how can I get it from you, God? Verses 3 and 4. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope and when you've lost what is most dear to you. Verse 3 says that that's where you'll find more of God and his rule which sounds harsh until we choose to understand that his rule is love in spite of what we've been taught. Our loss and suffering make room for his embrace. He's the one most dear to us, even if we don't know it. The young mom spinning on ice in Carrie Underwood's song throws up her arms and says, Jesus, take the wheel. Richard Rohr, who is a true contemplative, says it like this, Pain teaches a most counterintuitive thing. We must go down before we even know what is up. In terms of the ego, religions teach in some way that all must die before they die. Suffering of some sort seems to be the only thing strong enough to both destabilize and reveal our arrogance, our separateness, and our lack of compassion. He he defines suffering as whenever you are not in control. Suffering is the most effective way whereby humans learn to trust, allow, and give up control to another source, to God. He says, I wish there were a different answer, but Jesus reveals on the cross both the path and the price of full transformation into the divine. My message to you today is this. Strength, strength. And more strength the path through suffering is developing our strength with God as the coach he led the way by coming as Jesus to show us the attributes of strength that carry us through our suffering he broke through this he broke through suffering with the strength of the greatest suffering of all the rejection of his love by us sentencing him to the cross it's a paradox. It's a riddle. It's a mystery. Until, until we understand this. He wants to transform us into who he made us to be through his leadership, through our suffering. That's where we find ourselves. When we let him coach us through our suffering, on the other side is more of who we are. The suffering that comes your way and the suffering that comes my way, when offered up to the grid of God's strengthening transforms us into carriers of more love, more story, and more proof that God is our beloved. So can we mess this up? Oh, for sure. Especially as a church, when a church represents a Jesus that is really inaccurate. Here's a quote. When religion cannot find a meaning for human suffering, human beings far too often become cynical, bitter, negative, and blaming. Healthy religion, almost without realizing it, shows us what to do with our pain, with the absurd, the tragic, the nonsensical, the unjust. If we do not transform our pain, then we will transmit it. If we cannot find a way to make our wounds into sacred wounds, we'll give up on life and humanity. I'm afraid there are bitter and blaming people everywhere, both inside and outside of the church. He says, as they go through life, the hurts, disappointments, betrayals, abandonments, and the burden of their own sinfulness and brokenness all pile up. And they don't know what to do with the negativity. This is what we need to actually be saved from. If there isn't some way to find deeper meaning to our suffering, to realize that God is somehow in it and can even use it for good, we usually close up or shut down. So is this where you are today? Tempted to close up, close down, be bitter? Are you bitter toward God because you find yourself in the depths of suffering? Or if you're not there, is somebody that you love there? So how do we teach our strength We don't. You cannot teach yourself strength. Not this kind of strength. I think we go contemplative and spend time with God, asking him to prepare us with his strength. The familiar song, Raise Me Up, says, when I am still and wait here in the silence until you come and sit a while with me, then I will find that you raise me up to more than I can be. The only way through our suffering is to contemplate with God in silence and presence. To hear his leading. On this road, our mistakes don't matter so much because he's transforming everything. We strengthen, and our missteps never catch him by surprise. Braden, our Braden, who will shortly bring you the most beautiful song, told me recently about her mom and their family's fear that a not so good health diagnosis was in the offing. Braden said something so powerful, and I'm paraphrasing. You know these days are bound to come. They're a part of life. We're going to step into this and face it with God's help. She stepped into transformation deliberately. The happy ending, her mom is healthy. But there are many unhappy endings that we're left to make sense of. Bindi Irwin, daughter of crocodile hunter Steve Irwin, lost her dad at age 8. In her recent season with Dancing with the Stars... People were captivated by her spirit. Her partner, Derek Cuff, says she taught him that when something is too hard, she looks at that struggle and smiles. Struggle with joy. Near the end of the season, Bendy said, Here I am, given this opportunity to remember moments in my life that I never thought I'd really be able to look at and smile. I never thought I'd be given that chance. So thank you so much. She understood what had just happened to her. Her opportunity was to transform her pain through dance. We're given that same opportunity. We can transform our pain by dancing with God. Bindi credits her strength to the power of unconditional love, which is the very definition of God. Each of us is held by that same power. Bindi's unhappy ending, the death of her dad, transformed by her entering into her dance experience, became the beginning of her inspiring others to struggle with joy. In a recent conversation with a 30-something, we were looking back over her life and realized that once upon a time, such and such was an issue, and she very much struggled there. But wait, somehow... It had found itself to a happier back burner. We could only credit God and his path through it that she was willing to enter into, often going contemplative, sometimes simply holding on for dear life. Now she could see that in that area, she had been transformed with new strength and a new view. Unhappy can get transformed into a new view and sometimes even a new happy. It helps to remember your life is telling the story of your strength through suffering. Make no mistake, others are listening. Now we come to the hardest verses of all, 10 through 12. Jesus says, Yes, be so committed that you will be persecuted, put down, thrown out, and lied about. <laughs> and that's called good news. If you do this, heaven will applaud, and so will I. I, God. He says what it means is that the truth is too close for comfort. You're bringing truth that is too close for comfort, and those who persecute are uncomfortable. Let me close with two episodes from the story of my life. We'll get back to Jerry. But first, let me update you on John, the father of my three kids. You might remember that last February, February, a year ago, when I shared that my two older children had so aligned with him over his view of events from long ago that they decided I'm no longer welcome in their lives, nor is their youngest sister. This includes their spouses, both of whom I adore, and seven of my grandchildren. The youngest who was just born on New Year's Eve, I've only seen one picture of her. Contrast that to the fact that for every one of those other six grandchildren, I wasn't just with the families at birth. I was the one that stayed for a week or more to do whatever would make their lives easier. I mean, I was in-house for weeks. I haven't seen or spoken with those grandchildren since late 2014. My son contacted me a few weeks ago and asked if I was ready to change my story. I had to decline because even though I knew that changing my story to what would be untruth on my part would probably allow some form of restoration. So you ask why? Because God is big enough to create true restoration, and I'm waiting on him. Yesterday, Liz posted these words on Facebook. I lost a lot due to holding on to truth, but I'm not letting go. I find myself in her boat, and there's nothing easy about it. Only my contemplating with God has gotten me through. Here's what I know. In 1973, I asked God to show John how much he loved him because John's childhood was one tragic rejection after another. I wasn't strong enough to withstand his pain, but I never stopped my commitment to his freedom from that pain. Through hours of silence, tears, more tears, contemplation, more than ever I believe that the lies my two older children believe and the put-downs, And the being thrown out of their lives means that the truth of how much God loves John is marching ever closer to his embittered and rejected heart. I have every confidence that he's going to capitulate to what? God's love. And the barriers are going to be shattered. We'll never have to look back on the pain of separation. My contemplation has taught me understanding It's galvanized my heart into strength and patience and assurance. I can really say this. I have entered literally into a hospitality of suffering that has transformed into a hospitality of strength. We can reach a strength level where we somehow participate in a new way. It is just the most amazing thing. I'd like to invite the band back up on the stage. I want to close with Jerry. You must be wondering what happened. (laughs) I hope I can make clear what I'm trying to say. I don't know how I knew to do this, but it is one of the most significant actions I ever took as I look back years later and understand. When Jesus faced his accusers at the cross and he remained silent, Or refused to answer to their taunts and jeers. He literally lent them his dignity. Because he knew he was the son of God. He was able to let them try to tear him down. Because the truth that human power could be traded in for something so much greater. The infinite power of God's love and embrace. Was too close to his accusers for comfort. Their taunts and jeers were silenced when the proof of Jesus' love was demonstrated on the cross, and then they were free to choose to receive that demonstrated love. I lent Jerry my dignity. When he blew smoke in my face and I simply continued to respect him and stay focused on the matter at hand, which was him living out of district, I showed him who he was in my eyes Someone worth my love and respect and someone I would work to keep at our school. He became my my ally and I his. He received what I sought to give him, a new view of himself, and was transformed in the process. In our suffering, God is trying to transform our view of ourselves into what he sees, into who he has made each of us to be. Our church has gone through a similar transformation. We gave this church to God some years ago, asking him to do with it as he pleased, and we became sort of a pariah in the community. As a church, we stepped into believing that God's purifying, unconditional, and transformative love drives the train that we should be on. This is controversial in churches who are fixed, Or fixated on original sin one author notes that our dna our very dna as individuals and as a church is love and that original blessing should be our focus and where are those blessings found listen to this song